Hey, it's Liz Kelly. Here's what Ringer content you should be looking out for before the end of the week. From the star of Slow News Day, check out Kevin Clark's new video series, Worst Picks of the Week, where he offers up the worst NFL and pop culture bets each week. This will be up every Thursday throughout the NFL season, and you can watch on YouTube, Facebook, or Twitter. Also up on the site, we have two pieces on The Good Place, and Juliet Littman is writing about the 20-year anniversary of Felicity. Check it out on TheRinger.com. I'm Justin Charity. I'm Kate Nibbs. Welcome to Damage Control on the Channel 33 Network, a podcast where we unpack what upsets, excites, and divides us in popular culture. Like Canada, which is... Exciting! <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and upsetting and divisive. Canada is usually thought of as like the least upsetting, exciting, and divisive place uh, it's often talked about like America's reasonable northern neighbor, the easiest place to escape to whenever shit will really hit the fan here. But Canadian politics has developed its own like mini Trump figure, and we're going to talk about it. But first, Rod Rosenstein, Brett Kavanaugh. There's way too much breaking news out of Washington, D.C. this week. The news media is eating itself alive. We're going to talk about the rivalries that have turned a lot of this week's big political stories into a clusterfuck and have pit all the big news publications against each other, sometimes quite furiously. Okay, if you had to eat a member of the DC News Corp. As in devour? Yeah. I would eat Chris Saliza. I would, well, okay, (laughs) but so long as you're eating Saliza, right? Like, I would eat... Who would I eat? I would eat the entire staff of Axios. I, that, you know what I mean? Like, I just feel like I would just go for it. Just the whole staff. Uh, Who would I eat? Yeah, that's it. Yeah, that's okay. the answer. Okay, just curious. All right. Um, okay, so the week began very dramatically mm-hmm. with a scoop. Mm-hmm. A big news scoop from Axios. So Axios reported that Rod Rosenstein, the Justice Department figure who is overseeing Robert Mueller's investigation of Donald Trump. Axios reports that Rod Rosenstein is resigning. And this is like, Rod Rosenstein is this figure who has lot has had a lot of static with, with Trump. Trump obviously resents the Mueller investigation. And, you know, last week there was a New York Times report suggesting that Rod Rosenstein maybe joked about invoking the 25th Amendment to get Trump out of office. Fair enough. So... Basically, Axios on Monday reports that Rosenstein resigns, except it's apparently a misunderstanding because there are follow-up news reports, namely from NBC, that were like, no, he hasn't resigned. He's on his way in a car to the White House to get fired, to force Donald Trump to fire him. So that that's like playing out an hour after the initial report. And then an hour after that, reporters basically point out that Trump isn't even at the White House. <laughs> Was he golfing? No, he was in New York at oh, the United yeah, Nations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's, it's so wild. It's like for two hours, everyone's like, oh, there's going to be the showdown at the White House. And I don't remember who first pointed out. They're like, Trump's not even at the White House. What are you guys talking about? He's literally at the UN. <laughs> so then there becomes this whole, like on Monday, there are just hours and hours of weird uncertainty and conflicting news reports about where Rod Rosenstein is, where Donald Trump is, whether Rod Rosenstein resigned on Saturday, whether he resigned on Monday, whether he was fired, whether he was like going to be fired. 
So wait, but he has he resigned? Like he's still the deputy. Right? No, he is still <laughs> the deputy <laughs> attorney general okay. at the U.S. Department of Justice. It, this is the weird. This is why I want to talk about this because this is the weird case of the norm in the Trump administration is Trump firing people. That's like the norm of his career, right? Mm-hmm. Is dramatically you fire it. Yeah, it's a recurring theme. For right. Sure. Right. Yeah. It's the light motif of Donald Trump <laughs> is you're fired. And like this is a weird instance where not only was it a big, huge, confusing news story that this guy wasn't actually fired, mm-hmm. but the one person who sort of clarified everything was Trump himself. Because after it's like hours into this, um, after Trump gets out of meetings at the UN General Assembly, you know, he emerges and a reporter asks him about it. And he's like, oh, I'm supposed to meet with Rod Rosenstein on Thursday. Like, what do you guys talk? And then Sarah Sanders puts out a statement and is like, he's still, what's going on here? (laughs) So it felt uncanny. It felt like the rare instance where like the media is why I was like anxious and confused about what was happening in the world. And it took the Trump administration of all people to like restore sanity to the news cycle. Yeah, set things straight. I don't know. I mean... I think this is sort of an example of the problem of outlets just like putting the scoop priority above the like solidity of the news. Right. Because all of these stories did not need to exist. And it's upsetting for me personally because I and a lot of other people, like I feel like I have Trump news fatigue where like I can't process all of the news, so I need to figure out what is actually important. And this was a story where I got, like, very frustrated because I was like, what is happening? I don't know. (laughs) I'm not even going to pay attention to this because, like, I don't understand it. Um, That's not good. Like, I should want to be in the know, especially, like, I'm not a political journalist, but as a journalist. But when stuff like this happens, it just, like, exacerbates that impulse to tune out. Because you're like, well, none of this was necessary to put in front of my face. (laughs) Right. Right. It's like that news story after all that confusion basically landed on. Nothing had changed. Nothing had changed. (laughs) And also like check back on Thursday. You know what I mean? And it would be one thing if it were just one scoop Mm -hmm. and then that was a follow up. But there were, it was like a, it was a Mexican standoff of news organizations all shitting on other news organizations' reports and saying, no, that that person's sources screwed them over. This is the actual story. And there was, like you said, that very palpable sense of like, I, as a, we both work in media, but Mm -hmm. I just sort of reverted to the role of like feeling like a reader and Mm -hmm. a consumer of news. And I just was sitting there the whole time thinking, I am poorly served by this. Yeah, and I do have a lot of sympathy uh, um, because I understand that it would be incredibly difficult to get your facts straight when covering an administration that doesn't like even believe in the concept of a fact. Right. Like you have to be reporting the words of untrustworthy people. Like I I am like definitely sympathetic to that, but this Rosenstein story just it's bad. Like they need things should be better than this. One thing I have a hard time with, with political journalism in particular is like the logic of scoops. The, the impulse toward getting a scoop sort of led one reporter to trip over their own shoes. And then there are a bunch of reporters standing behind him that also end up like tripping over their own shoes. Cause you know what I mean? It's like, I'm trying to understand that because it seemed like in the beginning, like Jonathan Swan, who was the Axios reporter 
it, he seemed like very proud of not just reporting the news, but it being a scoop. Mm-hmm. And it's like the fact that throughout the day, I was just like following his Twitter feed. And the fact of the confusion that the story caused did not at any point seem to mean nearly as much to him as the value of being able to say, but I got a scoop, though. Mm-hmm. Where does that come from? Uh, ego. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that, well, there's also a lot of pressure Luckily, we don't really feel it at the ringer because our, we have sane bosses. But like a lot of news organizations are just obsessed with with scoops. They're like, it doesn't necessarily matter what the exclusive content is as long as it's exclusive. Right. And like obviously, like breaking news is an essential part of journalism, the most essential part. But like that doesn't mean that you should just not have any judgment of what that news is. And it doesn't mean that you should value being first over being right. right. That gets, I just think that gets lost in like the, the current environment. Um, and it leads to dumbass stories that aren't right and confuse people. I think the <laughs> ultimate big ass dumbass story that mm-hmm. confuses people is the Mueller investigation itself. Mm-hmm. And right in like Rod Rosenstein is a crucial figure in the whole orbit of that investigation. And I do feel like at this point, all reporting about it is confusing to me. Like it has this quality basically of seeming like the sourcing on the stories is just totally inscrutable. The fact that the Mueller investigation team, they basically don't leak and they don't talk. And so I am all the time feeling like I'm I'm not reading reporting about a thing so much as I'm reading like fan fiction mm. and like really weird zany speculation about somebody who clearly is not leaking that many details. And so it's like you're not you're not having background conversations with Mueller. You're probably having background conversations with like Steve Bannon or some person who both is crazy mm-hmm. and also has just really glaringly yeah. like interests that would totally change my perception of whatever reporting results from conversations with them if I knew that that's who the sources were on these stories. And I got to confess, like when, when you were talking about to me about talking about Rosenstein, I was a little like hesitant at first just because I feel like I don't know enough about the Mueller investigation. Like, I am not an expert. I haven't, like, been reading up on it as thoroughly as I normally would a story of this much importance just because I feel like I'm constantly reading about it and then not really enriching my own understanding of what's happening. So I am sort of pausing until, like, we're able to assess it, like, until something happens. Like, the investigation is ongoing. I feel like I'm not going to actually learn much more about it right. until it concludes. Right. Yeah. Or it's like you have these indictments and sentencings along the way for like... Yeah, the Manafort thing was, I mean, very entertaining and great, but... Right, but that's like an actual development. Yes. As opposed to like somebody parsing these weird factoids that come out. But it's it's funny, like Jonathan Chait wrote this cover story for New York Magazine a couple months ago about like... I would say the the totality of Russia Gate and the, mm-hmm. the skepticism in some corners of the left. I would say to mm-hmm. paying attention to it this much, and it's like I, I think he's kind of clueless about it in the story, but he is describing, I think, what we're both getting at, which is there's this chasm of like you're either the sort of person who reads a ton about the Mueller investigation just because it's on cable news and it's on the web all the time, and you come away from that coverage thinking. 
not only do I not feel like an expert, I feel like I just don't basically understand the state of play. Or you come away in the completely opposite vein of like that meme of Charlie Day from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, where mm-hmm. he had like he's making a conspiracy. Uh, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> board like, and he thinks he has like all of the pegs together and he's figured out the mystery yeah and those are the extremes and there's no one in the middle yeah like you either have to be like a resistance grifter who is insisting that like Putin literally has his hand up Trump's ass or you have to be like Glenn Greenwald who's insisting that like Russia has nothing to do with anything right like both completely crazy poles and the truth pretty evidently exists somewhere in the middle but like it's it's very unclear right now right right and like i don't yeah it seems as though like those two stances then a lot of the speculation comes from either of those places and like i just i am very very curious to see what comes of the Mueller investigation but i'm couldn't be less curious to see what like fan fiction gets written in the media about it like in, until it's concluding right especially because there's so much of it there's just too much of it. I would read some good fan fiction if it were like periodic, but it's every day. <laughs> All cable news. Like, do you watch a lot of cable news? Well, I did just watch a lot of cable news a few weeks ago when I was visiting my parents because like they have it on in the background all the time. It's wild how stupid everyone is. Like, no, sorry, actually offense to you pundits. Like, <laughs> 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 but like. I've I've like been on cable news before and I, I'm just going to tell you right now, I had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> like <laughs> it's just a bunch of people saying words that sort of make sense. Filling and, time, right. And they like have a bunch of bronzer on and that's <laughs> it. Like you're not going to get any information. <laughs> Do you watch a lot of cable news? I used to. That's the yeah. thing. When I lived in D.C., I watched cable news all the time. Watched, and it, which channel? Uh, I, would wa- I would watch Fox, MSNBC, and CNN. Ooh. I actually watched Fox News a lot just because I found, especially like Glenn yeah. Beck era Fox News. Oh. I watched Fox a lot. And I, I think I was just sort of morbidly fascinated mm-hmm. by specifically Glenn Beck. And then I would just end up watching like Megyn Kelly, yeah. you know, like, news segments or Santa's White. Santa's White. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I thought up. A lot about cable news on Monday when the Rosenstein story was playing out just because the sort of contentiousness between publications and reporters that played out and the messiness and just the news chaos where I just felt like I lived in a dystopian state of disinformation. It just reminded me of how cable news sounds. (laughs) Like if you just leave cable news on. I don't know. It's. I feel like the Mueller investigation is dragging a lot of non-cable news journalism toward the sort of logic and zaniness of cable news. And I think cable news is among the worst things that ever happened to the United States of America. <laughs> I was just thinking, like, I also went through a phase of watching cable news when I lived in Canada. And that sort of leads us to the next thing I want to talk to you about, which is Canadian politics better than american politics right well okay here's the thing yeah so much better right like for... we're moving to canada <laughs> it's gonna be great for sure like it is better but like people should not idealize canada the, the way that they have been well, why not drake poutine okay. <laughs> trudeau what else do you remember rob ford he smoked crack cocaine yes, yes he did okay 
Um, I remember that. He was the mayor. He was the mayor of Toronto. (laughs) He died a few years ago, but his brother has risen to power in Ontario. And I, I honestly was sort of only, I was vaguely aware of this because I used to live in Toronto and I have friends there. And so I sort of have, I think about Canadian politics, I think more than most Americans. So he is the premier of Ontario. He's sort of like the head of the province's government. Um, which is a bigger, more important job than his brother held as the mayor of Toronto because it's it's for a, a larger, you know, population and geographic area. Anyways, so when I was in Canada, I was talking to people about it. I was like, to be honest, I, I'm in America and we only think about ourselves, like what's going on? And it seemed very clear to me. People kept saying, you know, he's our Trump. He's our Trump. Like no, everyone keeps focusing on Trudeau and talking about Canada like it's this beacon of, of liberal hope, but the rise of Doug Ford, I think we should be paying attention because it's just like indicative that this like nativist white supremacist, buddy, buddy, isolationist bully government that Trump is running, like is now spawning like bootleg copycat. Like Trump is spawning copycats, little uh, he spawned at least one little Canadian copycat. So I wanted to talk to you about it because, first of all, like, had you ever heard of Doug Ford before? Yeah. Why? This is a whole dynasty, though, of people. It's a sort whole. Of. Why? The Ford's dad owned a very successful, like, printing company. Like, they made labels. Like, you know when you open, like, a chicken breast and it's, like, chicken on the, in plastic I'm wrap? I'm familiar with <laughs> So that is how... <laughs> That's how they got rich in Canada. And then um, Rob Ford and Doug Ford got involved in local politics. And that's like how the whole thing started. And so when Rob Ford was mayor, Doug Ford was a city councilor. So they like sort of were a tag team. Um, A Mario Brothers type situation. Yeah. So, okay. So Doug is the Luigi. (laughs) Oh, no. Okay. (laughs) Um, So Rob Ford was... Like obviously his his career as mayor was plagued by scandals. There was the whole thing that he was at an active addict and he also made a lot of like really inappropriate like comments. In a way, Rob Ford spawned Trump who spawned Doug Ford because Rob Ford, I think, was like before Trump the most prominent politician to like talk about a pussy. Um, oh. like he made like this horrible joke about like, I'm not even going to go there. I like hate saying that word, but anyways, he was just this like vulgar populist who like railed against the elites and his tenure as Toronto mayor was like a huge em- embarrassment. <laughs> like he, he like went on Jimmy Kimmel. He was like how a lot of people remember that Toronto existed. Right. Um, People sort of thought that the Ford era was over and then now Doug has come back into power and um, he's only been in power for a brief period of time, but it's like, it's been bad. The Washington Post recently said that Doug Ford needs a lesson in how democracies avoid authoritarianism because he's been 
basically doing everything he can to like wrest a lot of executive power for himself. He's, what does he want to do? I don't know if he has necessarily like a super coherent plan. Um, um, also like Trump. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But he is in favor of basically like deregulation. He's basically trying to destroy the municipal government. Like right. he's pissed that when he was city councilor, he made a lot of enemies. So he's trying to like reduce the number of municipalities but like cut it in half basically he wants to make the government a lot smaller right and then he's doing like one of his big policy proposals was that beer should be one dollar agree <laughs> agree <laughs> but, but is there like a no disclaimer? it was just like people were like what? <laughs> okay <laughs> right. and like all of this is happening, and I feel like no one knows about it in America because it's, like, on a smaller scale, but still indicative of, like, how this, like, the Trump doctrine is spreading and, like, getting its hooks in, like, even places that we consider super liberal. Right. I mean, I do think part of the problem, too, is that Americans don't care about any place that's not America. <laughs> I just, yeah, you know no, what I mean? I, I think especially in the past 10 years of American politics, Americans just don't perceive, like, movements of any stripe in other countries at all. And I, there's some weird closure of, like, American foreign policy and, like, American political concerns. And maybe that's part of it. But I'm curious, like, it is a stereotype in the American imagination to imagine Canada as this inflexibly liberal alternative to the United States. And it's funny because like the what you just described to me mm -hmm. seems like a nuanced reactionary picture. So why does that liberal idealization of Canada endure? Like I don't really I don't know. I well I think they see the broad strokes and like for sure Canada is more liberal and it has a better social safety net. Than America. Right. Like, that's true for sure. But that's all people see because they're not paying attention. So they're missing a lot of the reactionary stuff that's actually happening. Right. And so it's also like super comforting to imagine like a chilly land where everyone's nice to each other. <laughs> right. But like, think about the fact that there's still a huge difference in how Americans perceive Canada versus mm -hmm. how they perceive Mexico, right? Mm -hmm. Like, Americans aren't really, outside of immigration, Americans aren't paying attention to Mexico, but the result of that is that they don't really have any conceptions about, like, uh, Mexico's political identity. Mm -hmm. Whereas, like, with Canada, Americans aren't paying attention, and yet they have fallen for this weird branding of Canada. Well, I, so the fact that that brand exists <laughs> at all is what's weird to me, that Canada has a brand as we have a better social safety net than mm -hmm. the United States, ergo, mm -hmm. like, we're basically France. <laughs> well, I think that Americans do have a really broad idea of Mexican politics, and it's just like, cartels, oh my God. Oh, that's true, yeah. You know, like, which is just as incorrect as portraying Canada as, like, this wonderland of... Healthcare. Healthcare, yeah. <laughs> um, did you know that Jordan Peterson is Canadian? Yeah, let's talk about this. Because yeah. that's the other thing when people are sort of like, yeah, all Canadians, they're basically like friendly and inoffensive. And then meanwhile, I just, I would say for the past year, I have not been able to think about Canada without thinking about Jordan Peterson. And Gavin McGinnis. <laughs> right. Like right. there's this whole wave and there, like a lot of the influential, like all 
right people are Canadian. Right. And we don't talk about... I don't really... <laughs> I don't know why they're Canadian or what that says. Um, but anyways, it's it's weird to me that like so many of these influential alt-right people are not even American. Right. I mean, I do... I do hesitate to describe it as like Trump spawning Ford or the other way. Like I do think that for the past several years there has been or for the past few years there's been a global a pretty like diversified global resurgence of right-wing politics mm-hmm. in advanced yeah, democracies. Yeah, like M- Marie Le Pen. Right. And it's sort of I think that that I think people have written about that trend Right. From like Western Europe to Japan, like there is a sort of moment of right wing politics happening across the globe. I think with Canada, it's just surprise. Like Americans have been inattentive to it. Mm -hmm. And Canada, it's just especially jarring because Canada's right there. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And like now it's. Like it's one thing not to see Brexit (laughs) because Brexit, it's like, uh, you know, Brexit, like. Brexit at least is on people's radars, I yeah. think. But I don't think the fact that there is this whole reactionary movement in Canada is. Right. I just wanted to talk about it because I feel like it's one of those things where, like, busting the myth or, like, complicating the myth of Canada as a liberal paradise right. is is important right now because it's, like, a reminder that politics is a lot more complicated than most people. Right. And it's also just not a thing you can... I mean, obviously, there are extreme examples of, like, refugee crises in politic- in mm-hmm. countries where politics are literally violently breaking down. But mm-hmm. I think on a sort of – on a level more akin to the United States, like, it's not a thing you can run from. It's not a thing you can just be like – or you can just wait out mm-hmm. and be like, Trump is bad or whatever. I guess we just wait till the next election or I flee to Canada. Well, yes. And, okay, this is the other point I wanted to make. <laughs> Is that I moved to Canada when I was 18 because I was like, Bush won, fuck you, America, I'm going to Canada. I did that. And that was really stupid. <laughs> I did have like, I did have fun there. Like I love Canada, but it's just like it's a bad idea to put, even have this fantasy that there's a place you can run away from America from. Right. It's, I mean America specifically, because you really yeah. cannot run away from America in <laughs> like, any part of the planet. <laughs> like it's better in my mind, to just try to make America better than to... You mean make America great again? Shut up. <laughs> no! Make it better. Undertones. So I'm obviously, honestly, not going to be like subscribing to the Globe and Mail and following Canadian politics like down to the minute. But I do think it's really important that people pay a bit more attention to what's going on with our political neighbors and allies because what is actually going on is a lot more complicated than it it might appear. And that's all. All right. I'm American. I'm Canadian and American. And that's damage (laughs) control. (laughs) You'll hear from us again in two weeks. Yes. Yes.